Well, good morning, Living Word. It's so good to see all of your smiling faces this morning. Um, for those of you who are newish this morning, like uh, Drew said, I'm his wife, and my name is Katie, and um, I get the pleasure of speaking with you this morning. Um, a little bit about me, in case you want to know. I was actually born in the Pacific Northwest area. I grew up around the Snohomish area, and um, actually, my siblings and my parents still live there, and just this weekend, we got to celebrate with my parents their 50th anniversary. That was really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we, uh, they actually, when they were first married, they lived here in Oak Harbor and they actually, fun fact, helped plant this church, which is really cool. Um, my siblings grew up uh, here. They moved to the uh, Snohomish area right before I was born, but I spent much of my summers up here. So this has kind of always been my home away from home. And now it's my actually ho actual home, which I love that. Um, Drew and I, this year, we celebrate 15 years of marriage, and seven of those years, oh, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> seven of those years have been spent here. Um, we have two little kids, uh, Zeke here, Zeke is nine, and then a daughter next door, her name is Thea, and she's seven. So you guys have quite literally watched our family grow up and our marriage grow up over the last seven years, and we've just so appreciated all of your encouragement and support and love for us. So thank you for just being who you guys are. We love this community. Um, I do several things around the church here. You'll probably see me up here leading worship about once a month, and I help out with the women's ministry and some of the graphics work and stuff like that. But my actual job, if you didn't know, I am an ER nurse by trade. So I've done that for about 13 years. The first half of my career was spent at Providence. It's a hospital in Everett, in the ER there. And then for the last half, I've been working at Anacortes Hospital Island uh, in the ER there. And you know, I work about one, at one 12-hour shift a week. But let me tell you, it's not very often, but when I'm there, every single shift, I see one of you. <laughs> <laughs> No, in all jokes aside, I actually really, I, I consider it such a privilege to get to, to get to be with you guys in those moments of crisis and to provide care and comfort. Um, it is a privilege. Uh, it, besides that, I spend the bulk of my time with my kids. I get to homeschool them and I have so much fun doing that. I'm, oftentimes I'm learning alongside them and relearning things. <laughs> um, and it brings me a lot of joy. So that's a bit about me. Uh, this morning, I get the joy of speaking with you guys about, spoiler alert, Advent. Here it is, right here. Um, and I absolutely love Advent. It's my favorite family tradition that we partake in every single year. Um, and so I'm excited that I get the first sermon in the series because that means I get to nerd out with you guys about the history of Advent. More than just my kids, you get to hear it this morning. So lucky you. Anyways, uh, we love it. Since the beginning of November, my kids have been asking me when we can get out all the Advent stuff. It's something that we look forward to. So let's discuss the history of Advent this morning. There's a very real possibility that some of you this morning don't know what Advent is, and that's totally fine. Or maybe the context that you have for it is the like chocolate perforated 30-day calendars that you can get at the grocery store. I mean, no judgment, the chocolate, the daily treats are great, um, but obviously that's not what Advent is entirely all about. It's not just a countdown, right? 
And I believe if we have the information and understand the significance behind it, um, maybe you guys can understand why we talk about it every single year around this time, and, and maybe I can convince some of you to make it a yearly tradition. Um, Advent takes place, so it takes place during the month before Christmas, okay? It's the time that the ancient, which is the time that the ancient church decided we would celebrate the birth of Christ. And it showed up in the writings of church history between the 4th and 6th centuries A.D. That's when we started seeing some traditions pop up around Advent. So it's a very, very old practice. It's been around for a long time. Um, The word Advent actually comes from the Latin word Adventus. And that word means coming or arrival. As it says very conveniently right behind my head. Hence the name of the sermon series, okay? And it's traditionally a time that is meant to be spent reflecting upon the coming of Christ when he came in human flesh, but also the future coming of Christ when he'll come again. Uh, One of the ways that churches uh, have traditionally chosen to celebrate Advent is by focusing on four things, and that's why, uh, well, there's a fifth candle. I'll explain that in a minute. But four things that the church has has decided to focus upon traditionally um, that Christ brought into the world, and those are hope, love, joy, and peace, also behind my head, right? And uh, so that's kind of what they do. On the the four Sundays leading up to Advent, a candle is lit. There's some scriptures that are read, a prayer that's prayed, um, discussing those four things, okay? So here's an Advent display. I put this together this week. And we have um, the first candle, which is lit in honor of hope. It's a purple candle. Um, these are actually traditionally the colors, which is interesting. Um, so we have the, the purple candle for hope. We have the second week, which is the purple candle for love. The third week, um, the third Sunday before Christmas is the pink candle, which is joy. And then the fourth Sunday, the Sunday right before Christmas, is uh, peace. And then this middle candle right here is meant to be... Uh, lit on Christmas Eve, and that one is the Christ candle, and it represents the Christ as the light of the world, okay? So those, that, is the, that is it in a nutshell, and obviously if you decide to do this at home, it doesn't matter what color candle you have. You do you. If you got uh, some Yankee candles, you got one candle, light the same candle every week. You got a flashlight on your phone even, no excuses, right? We all have ways to do this, and it doesn't have to be a pretty display like this. You know, I personally, I, I have yellow beeswax candles at home, and that, that's totally fine. I don't think that God cares, right? <laughs> it's not the point of it. So on the first Sunday of Advent, here we are. We are going to light the hope candle, and I'm going to give my son some time to light it while I talk some more. Yay, son. If all of this is kind of... Uh, like just slipping past your head this morning, don't worry about it. I did make, oh, you did it so fast. Good job. Thought it would take longer. (laughs) Uh, We have a little, I did actually three years ago put together a booklet online uh, with some how-tos. So if you go on our website, it's on there because I love this so much. And also on there is an actual, you can download or print a booklet that has daily, or sorry, weekly readings for the Sundays um, that includes a scripture and a prayer. So want to check that out, this is my plug, go check it out. And uh, also on there, if you discover that you're the type of person who really loves this and wants to do it daily, I included uh, some resources with Amazon links and everything for you to, to pick some books that you might enjoy that I've read personally or that other people on the staff have read. So go check that out at some point.
So that's, the why, that's, that's what Advent is, but now we're going to talk about why. Why do we celebrate Advent? All right, this is the interactive part of the sermon. What are some words, if you could use to describe the Christmas season? What are some words? Go ahead, throw them out. Ooh, yes. Some words, when you think about the Christmas season, go ahead, throw some out. Merry, joy. <laughs> busy. All right, the word I was looking for this morning is busy, okay? Yes, it's fun, magical, warm, cozy, all of these happy things, family, whatever. But also the word that generally gets thrown out that I hear a lot is that it's busy, okay? We have an, a lot of times around this time of year, it overloaded schedule. There are so many usually really good things to be involved in. Um, so much packed into the Christmas season. We got parties and shopping, recitals, concerts, events, decorating, plays, get-togethers, is anyone's blood pressure rising as I'm saying all these? And you're like, oh, no. Um, it's just so easy this time of year to start feeling stressed and to feel like you're running ragged, just trying to pack all the experiences in. But there's also, I, I guarantee, in every single one of us, there's this very real part of us that knows that's not how it's supposed to be, right? And so this is where we get to Advent, the discussion about Advent, because Advent is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter, okay? Here's what I mean by that. It's the time before the actual holiday that's meant to be spent slowing, simplifying, fasting, and preparing our hearts. During Advent, the, the focus is supposed to be on, on doing less, not more, upon having less instead of having more upon receiving the love that we have in Christ and, and giving it generously to those around us. And not, not just frantically giving to this thing and that thing and that thing, but with, with intention, right? And the things that we do are meant to be slow and a celebration of what truly matters. We sit and wait and anticipate the arrival of Christ. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, when I actually adhere to these guidelines, it's refreshing, right? Now, does that mean that the Barnharts are like somehow magically not stressed and busy around Christmas time? No, we're human. Uh, we have two young kids. There's no shortage of things to be involved in. Um, but we are actively trying to live counterculturally, trying to not get caught up in the race. Uh, because that's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, right? Living counterculturally. And so each year as we practice Advent, it gets easier with time. Um, and not just easier, but it also ends up being something we long for, something that it becomes like the rhythm of our souls. As, as Advent rolls around, we're like, breathe a deep sigh of relief that it's coming. And so each year, how we practice Advent, and we do this daily because I'm, hom I'm homeschooling, but this is probably weekly for most, we sit at the dinner table, we turn out the lights, we turn off all of the noise and the distraction, and we look in each other's eyes, and we sit and we read from the scripture together, and we discuss the scripture, and we pray together, and we really listen to each other, right? And we, we, we discuss what are some ways that we can be giving this during this week? How can we, who is hurting? Who needs our time 
and unhurried attention. Who needs a meal? Who, who really needs the love, joy, peace, and hope of God right now? We do all of that, and it's, it's such a sacred time, right? And it doesn't take long. You know, it's maybe like 15 minutes, but it's, it's, it's just a simple way that we prepare our hearts and remind ourselves what the season is all about because Advent isn't just supposed to be another thing that I'm doing at Christmas time, right? It's, for me, I, I view it as kind of like the filter that helps me deter- determine what actually I'm supposed to be doing, right? I, I get to put my activities through the filter of Advent, and I ask these questions. Will, will this activity promote slow living, or it, will it make me feel hurried? Will it bring life to me, and will it help me to connect to the people around me in a deep and meaningful way? You know, will it inspire wonder? Will it draw me closer to the heart of God? These are the questions I'm asking as I'm approaching the activities and the many list of things that I can be involved in during the Christmas season. Um, You know, because Advent isn't just daily or weekly readings, it's kind of a posture and a way of being, and yes, it's for the holiday season, but Honestly, I would like it to be for my whole life. And I guess that's why I love Advent so much. So uh, we've lit the candle of hope. And that was the spoiler for this morning because I get to talk to you about hope, the arrival of hope. So before I get there, will you pray with me? Bow our heads. Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for the hope that you have brought to each of our lives and to this world, and the hope that you're continuing to bring. Jesus, this morning I surrender to you and I ask that you would use my words this morning to bring hope and to just help us draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're someone who likes to pre-flip your Bible to like be there when I'm ready, I'm going to be in Romans chapter 8 or you can do your phones or read it on the screen. Whatever works for you, you do you. All right, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning, though, um, eventually. But this morning, first, I would like to start with a definition of what, a very simple definition of what hope is and some truths that we know about it, okay? Hope is defined as an expectation, desire, or anticipation of something to happen. That's very vague. And very simple, right? But we all know that hope is obviously much more complex than that. Here are four truths that we know about hope. The first is this. Hope is an emotion or cognitive process we experience from infancy. Okay, it's from our birth. We hope for and anticipate food and nurture and the warmth of a loved one's touch. It's not something that we fabricate or or it's something that's taught. It's just naturally inborn in us. It's part of our creative genetic makeup. Second truth, hope motivates action. Hope is not synonymous with positive thinking. It's not the same as optimism or happy thoughts. When we think of true hope, what hope actually is, we know that it's not passive, it's not like a quick and warm and fuzzy on the inside, it's, it's something that motivates action, okay? Life changes as a result of true hope. It changes the way that we think and therefore the way that we live and ultimately it changes who we are. Third truth that we know about hope, and this may be a very obvious statement, but hope requires something to hope in. 
hope doesn't stand on its own. While positive feelings and optimism and those kind of things can kind of be thrown willy-nilly out and, and left to chance, true hope has depth. It cannot exist without a base or something that we hope in. And we place our hope either in ourselves or in something externally outside of ourselves. Okay. And then the fourth truth that we know about hope is that hope is healing. We all can agree about this from personal experience, right? Um, but science actually agrees that hope is beneficial to our experience as humans. Hope has actually been shown on, through MRI imaging to reduce anxiety in the brain. It releases happy juices and chemical hugs that actually <laughs> numb your pain and promote physical healing. It's incredible. Now, if that's what hope is, then what does the absence of hope look like? Okay, you guys can probably guess it. The opposite of hope is fear and anxiety, a word we use called despair, and often hopelessness. Hope cannot be removed entirely from the human psyche, but it is something that can be reduced through repeated trauma and loss. It can be repressed to where we hope less, and that's where we get that word, right? So how does this happen? How do we end up hopeless? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple reasons that kind of work hand in hand, and the first of those is this. We may find ourselves hopeless when we misplace our hope. Now, as we discussed, hope is something that, ex that has to have something to hope in, right? So it stands to reason that if we place our hope in something, it's very possible that we can also lose our hope in that something, correct? It can be misplaced. So people who are feeling hopeless, they, we have put our hope in something or someone and it didn't end well. Hopes were disappointed or let down. And if you're a human in here this morning, you've felt that experience at some point in your life, correct? Um, but those who have experienced this repeatedly, you may find yourself in a perpetual state of anxiety, stuck, numbing out, seeking the next dopamine high or that chemical hug, unable to change, hopeless. And this sounds familiar because we live in a world full of misplaced hope, don't we? Yeah, it's everywhere we look. One of those ways that we can misplace our hope is that we have a tendency to place our hope in our circumstances. See, we have hope when things are going our way, when things are looking up, when life is positive, right? But what happens when that's not true? Because the reality is that our circumstances are transient. They change constantly, constantly changing. And this can often end, us, end up, if we put our hope in our circumstances, we end up hopeless and disappointed at some point. And this leads me to another reason why I think people end up hopeless. It's because pain has the tendency to steal our hope. When we experience pain, loss, trauma, grief, it's not uncommon to find ourselves short on hope and hopeless. And we all can probably indisputably agree that we want to live lives full of hope, right? We don't want to be hopeless. Nobody wants to be stuck like that. But it's not so simple. Um, 
It's not a matter of simply seeing the glass half full. Hope is really complicated. Here are some questions that I think humanity runs up against and it ties in with what I was just talking about. When we consider how to live lives full of hope, we ask these two questions. Where can I place my hope that won't disappoint me? And how can I continue to hope even when life is painful? And to answer those questions, let's see what the Bible says, right? And this is the part where we're going to actually open to Romans chapter 8. Now, the words here, they were penned by Paul, the Apostle Paul, to, you guessed it, the Romans. <laughs> Shocker, I know. Um, he, <laughs> thanks for laughing. <laughs> he has a lot to say in Romans, and Romans is probably his most heady, lengthy theological discourse, discourse that he wrote. It's very dense, and I know I'm barely going to scratch the surface on this passage this morning, so give me some grace. But I love what this passage has to say about hope. So let's read it together, starting in verse 14, Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba in Hebrew means Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs and co-heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So right here in the beginning of this passage is the answer to the first question of where can I place my hope that won't disappoint me? In order to avoid hopelessness, we have to learn that hope placed in Christ is secure. And that's the only place where it's secure. Paul says that when you put your hope in Christ, this is what happens. You're filled with the Spirit of God and you're no longer slaves to fear, which is the opposite of hope. Because your position, your identity, your very being is now secure. You are adopted as his children. You get to look upon the God of the universe who hung the stars in the sky, and you get to call him daddy. That's really beautiful. And the more that we lean into this truth and choose to be the sons and daughters of God, the more that he pours his blessings upon us. It says that we're not just his sons and daughters, but we're his heirs. And that's mind-boggling, because that means that everything that he has is ours. 
And as we believe that, as we lean into that truth, he pours his blessings upon us, and that, that blessing is in the form of his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And this is the gospel, right? Paul is setting up the scene with this truth that Christ is the only secure place for our hope. And that sounds really ideal, and it would be nice to just leave it right here and walk off this little podium here, but then we still have the problem of pain. Because pain, even when we place our hope in Christ, pain has the ability to come in and steal our hope. It makes us question our security as children of God, as sons and daughters of God. And this is where we run up against that second question when struggling to live a life full of hope. How can I continue to hope even when life is painful? You see, because we have this belief that pain is actually the thing that crushes and steals our hope. Right? That's logical. But what if we shifted our perspective to see that pain actually has the potential to be the birthplace of our hope? would love for this to not be true, but it's a biblical truth that we see throughout Scripture. Pain is the place where true hope is formed. It's the place where our hope becomes real and not just something we say, right? It, be it, it, be it has substance. It becomes solid and unshakable. It's where we experience redemption and healing. And I know this is super encouraging and uplifting <laughs> to hear. Oh, man. But I can't, I can't sugarcoat the truth. The truth is the world is super broken, and we broke it. Yeah. And we keep breaking it, you know? We have this imagery that Paul has laid out as a, as, as, as a father, a loving father for his children. And, and the problem is that humanity has a track record of living as super disobedient children. And this is the part of the sermon where if Zach Sawhill were up here, he would call you all dirtbags. <laughs> oh, man. But it's true. Um, death, violence, pollution, etc. These are the consequences of our selfish decisions. And by our choice, we would run around doing whatever we want, thinking of no one else, fulfilling all of our own desires as we see fit, and there would be magically somehow no consequences. <laughs> but without consequences, how can there be change? God instead, like a good father, allows us to feel the natural consequences of our actions. That is how Paul worded it, right? God subjected creation to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And that word frustration, it also means futility or purposelessness, chaos. I like to kind of view it like in my brain as like a hamster wheel, you know, and uh, spinning and spinning around. And if there are any parents in the room, do you ever feel like you're just watching your kids like spin around on that hamster wheel, like just trying to figure out how to make right decisions? Just constantly. And why, why does God allow this? Why does any loving parent subject their children to consequences? these two little words here, and they are the most important words in that entire passage of Scripture that I read, in my opinion. And if you miss them, 
you miss the whole point. You miss the heart of God. These words are what turn your image of God as mean and sadistic into a loving father. The scripture said this. It said, Subject, he subjected creation to frustration, by, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. As a loving father, God lets us feel the weight of our decisions and the consequences are steep. But it's all in hope, in hope that we would learn from our choices. Unfortunately, usually the long and the hard way. <laughs> I'm going to explain this one, uh, one other way. Uh, because I'm a medical person by trade, it helps me understand it. And I promise I won't get too gruesome with my medical analogy. <laughs> but medical people, we understand that sometimes you're required to undergo procedures in more pain and the setting of a bone, et cetera, in order for there to be healing. Sometimes things have to get worse in order to get better. We get this, okay? And I have constant reminders of this in the ER. One of those is uh, an infected wound, okay? Say, for instance, I, I don't know, managed to cut myself on this this morning. It's not very clean. Nothing is really clean. Let's be honest. Nothing's clean. There's going to be dirt and bacteria in here, okay? And the body is incredible. God made the body so amazing. Your cells, inflammation will occur, and your cells will rush to the site of that wound and will literally start attaching to that bacteria and trying to push it out of your body. It's, it's amazing. But it's also not perfect, okay? There's limitations to that, and sometimes, no matter what your body's best efforts have been, they're, they're, it may not completely fix and heal, okay? And infection can set in. And it requires intervention at this point. And that's when people come into the ER, often with abscesses or wounds that have become so severely infected that if left to themselves, the person would most likely meet a not-so-great end. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Let's just say it that way. <laughs> All right? Um, sepsis and, and whatever else. Okay. Okay, last service, I was like, and you'll die. And John was in the front row, and he started dying laughing. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to change that next service. But I said it anyways. So here we are. For you, man. All right. Uh, okay, but the intervention and the time spent healing that wound is not quick and painless as much as we'd like it to be. The body has to be subjected to more pain in order to heal. It requires needles, antibiotics, fluids, other medications, usually an incision to drain and wash out whatever's inside and get it outside. And uh, it, requires, it requires pain and time. A lot of times it's, it can need surgery, you know, washing and cutting and cleansing away the dead tissue. Sorry, that's as gruesome as I'm going to get. And then once all of that is done... That's just the beginning. The person has to endure the pain of recovery as the tissue has to fill in. It has to regrow and granulate, right? And it may become infected again, may require more intervention. And all of this is to promote healing. And so the doctors and the surgeons, they subject your body to futility, frustration, and more pain in hope that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory. And that makes sense, right? We can wrap our brains around that in a clinical setting, but imagine that on the scale of an infected universe across all of time, 
past, present, and future. And that's when our brains just go beep, burr, burr, and shut down, right? It's massive. We like to think that we know better than God on a regular basis, right? We try to comprehend our individual pains in this moment and how they can be allowed from a loving God. That's a question we ask constantly as humans. But the reality is we can't understand it. How can our small human brains fathom what is required to cleanse, to restore, to liberate all of existence? We can't. And so here we are, we're somewhere in the process of a surgical restoration of the whole world. The people in the Old Testament, right, they were pre-surgery. They were the case studies that showed you can't really fix yourselves. You've tried and failed, right, over and over again. And you can't heal themselves. Then Jesus came, and he performed the necessary surgery to make things right. And this is what's so beautiful about our surgeon. I love this about him. He was not detached from our illness. He wasn't separated by gloves and drapes and instruments. He actually entered into the pain himself. He subjected himself to all of it, all that we feel, all of the consequences for our wrong living. He took them on himself, felt them all. Our, you know, our, our poverty, loneliness, grief, physical pain and limitation, humiliation, you name it, he felt it. And then, this is what he did. He showed us how to reverse it. With his life, he, he instructed us with his words and his actions on how to live differently. How to live lives of service and sacrifice instead of our selfish and futile ways of living. That hamster wheel. And even unto his own death, he showed us how that kind of life can conquer death, quite literally. And how that kind of life can, can end decay and, and change and liberate the world. That's our surgeon. And here we are, we're on the other side of the story, right? We're post-surgery. But the tissue's still kind of healing. It's still filling in. It's not resolved yet. We are still in process. It's painful. And sometimes it feels like, honestly, it feels like nothing has changed at all, right? But it has. And we are actually the evidence of that. That's what we're supposed to be because he placed his spirit inside of us. We now have a patient and gentle internal doctor inside of us to direct and order our healing. And as the sons and daughters of God, we're welcomed in, we get to be his assistants. That's just crazy. This passage of scripture actually says that all of creation has been groaning, longing for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed for us, for us to come and join with the great physician to aid him in assisting our own healing as well as the healing of all of creation. That is a huge, high calling, isn't it? We join with God, our loving surgeon, in hope. And this is biblical hope. This is true hope. Worship team, you can come this morning. I'm getting ready to close. I'm landing the plane. 
But this is where I want to leave you with one final truth about hope. If you walk away from this morning and everything else just went whoop, right past you, I, I, I pray that this is the one thing that sticks. And it's this truth. Hope requires trust. True hope can't exist without faith. It's impossible to hope and to wait upon the Lord with eager expectation unless we trust him. The basis for our hope is trust. And it's not something we can fabricate or create or make and muster. Similar to a child with a loving parent or a patient with a caring surgeon, hope can only continue to exist and thrive in a relationship that's built on deep trust. That's it. So if you can imagine with me this morning, just picture yourself sitting at the kitchen table And if Jesus were sitting across the table from you right now, I believe that he would cradle our weary and tired and hopeless hearts. And then he would lift our chins to look into our eyes this morning. And he would remind us of our very limited perspective. And I think he would make this invitation this morning to each and every one of us. He would ask, will you trust me? Will you choose to trust me? And I want to give you a chance to respond to Jesus this morning. Have you misplaced your hope? Has your hope been placed in circumstances in a person, a job, your health, in yourself, in your own strength? And has this left you disappointed and hopeless? Jesus' invitation is this this morning. Will you trust me? And you need simply answer him this way, either out loud or in your heart. Yes, Jesus, help me to trust you. And has pain stolen your hope this morning? Are you overwhelmed by grief and anxiety? I believe his invitation is still this. He looks into your eyes and he asks, will you? trust me? Will you choose to trust me? And you may answer him again in this way, either out loud or in your heart. Yes, Jesus, help me to trust you. Amen. As I close this morning, I want to read over you a blessing. It's also written by Paul in in this same letter to the Romans in chapter 15. And this is my prayer for all of us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me as we sing this last song together?